Well, happy Valentine's Day. Um, I'm not Francis and Lisa. <clears throat> um, they, were, uh, they were supposed to speak today and aren't going to be able to, uh, to speak. And so uh, on Thursday, uh, Francis just called and said, hey, could you, could you speak? And so uh, um, you got the, the second team this week. Um, uh, what I want to do today is this. I've been wrestling for about two weeks on what to give my wife for Valentine's Day. Um, I know that seems very unlike guyly of me. Um, in fact, I, I think I read a statistic the other day that 85% of men handle their purchase uh, within the last 24 hours. And so <clears throat> I was glad to know I was above the curve. Um, but I, anybody that knows me knows I'm a complete geek, and I'm okay with that, by the way. I, um, uh, my background is math and chemistry, uh, but I'm also just a, a huge history geek. I love reading history. I love the History Channel. I believe it was created by God for our purpose. And um, I just, I think there's so many aspects of history that I think we should spend more time in. And uh, so one of the joys that I had this week, which I'd never been able to do before, uh, I looked into the history of Valentine's Day. And uh, it was such a good time. And I was trying to think, off of the history of Valentine's Day, what kind of a gift could I bring my wife? And so going back into it, it, it literally was a, it was more of a Roman festival. It happened in the, in the city of Rome, around some caves outside of Rome, but on the 14th, what they would do was, is in order to prepare for this feast called Lupercalia, they would celebrate first a feast to Juno. The, the, she was literally the, uh, the queen of all the gods and the goddesses. And they would come and with the hope of now through that time, women especially that were barren, their hopes would they, would they would bear children. Women that weren't married would be able to get married. In other words, it was this time in which they, they set out. And literally the idea was that they might develop love was, was the concept. What they would do is, is all the women that would show up, all the maidens, they would take their names and they'd put them inside of a jar. And when they put them inside of the jar, different young men from that particular area would come. They would draw those names out. They would pin those names to themselves. So if you've ever heard this concept of wearing your heart on your sleeve, that's where that came from. And, and they would literally, the idea was, is that person, they would hang out for the whole week of Lupercalia. At the end of it, the hope was of these young maidens would be that they would then marry, that they would fall in love. Well, the, the feast was a little bit uh, uh, grotesque. It started off on the next day after February 14th in which they would slaughter two goats and a dog. And with that, they would cut the strands off. And these women would all get, try to get in the way as men that were basically nude would grab these and go around slapping them with the blood and with, the, with everything that was happening in the hopes that they would, they would, they would uh, bear children. And so, just so you know later, we're not going to be doing that. <laughs> But it was just a vision of love in that culture at that time. Right around the 5th century, right before the 5th century had ended, one of the bishops in the area decided, how is it that we as a church can go in and take what is this concept of love and define it out of who Christ is? And they chose a man named St. Valentine to be the guy that they would literally have this celebration around because of what God had done in his life. St. Valentine was a pastor in Rome in the, in the end of the second century. Right about that time, Claudius, uh, he was king. Um, he was literally probably one of the more uh, devastating kings of that time, the Caesars. And what his goal was, was to expand his kingdom all over Rome, but he was running into something terrible. These guys were getting married, and as they got married, they didn't want to leave home and go fight battles. 
So what he decided to do was, in order for these men to go fight battles, he banned marriage within Rome at that time so that these men would not be able to find these, these, these spouses. And it got in the way, literally, of Lupercalia. But there was this pastor named Valentine who refused to do that. He believed in his gut that if men and women are going to get married, there's no government that should tell them not to get married. And so literally what he would do is, is they would find a quiet place And it says even too, what he would do is he would whisper the vows with the young couple so that he didn't get caught. Finally, one night, probably around the end of January, early February, a young couple got away, but he didn't when he was bombarded and he was captured and brought before Claudius. And being brought before Claudius, he was beaten, he was sentenced to death, and the sentencing of death would happen on February 14th. While he was in jail, something amazing started to happen. All of a sudden, at his jail cell on the window, flowers and notes started to show up to him, thanking him for the marriage he performed in regards to them. He also began to meet the jailer, and the story goes that in meeting the jailer, his daughter was very sick. The jailer brought his daughter to him. He healed the daughter, and for the last few couple weeks of his life, he spent time with the jailer's daughter. And at the very end of his life, the day that he was going to be killed, he wrote her a note. He wrote her a note explaining why he had to do what he was doing, his heart behind what he was doing, what he was going to do. And at the very end of it, he wrote, your Valentine. That day, he got beaten almost to death. And while he was still grasping for life, they cut his head off. That looks great on a card, doesn't it? So the priest decided that's the guy we want to represent what this is all about. They went back into this guy's life and they realized love that is just what was called eros at the time, which we get our word erotic from, comes and goes. But there's a unique love that is established by the work of Jesus that's so different than any form of love that they wanted to replace it. In other words, they wanted to redefine what was Lupercalia and they called it Valentine's Day and it became a celebration of deep, deep love. This man was single. He had no children. So in other words, those of you in the single room, you need to understand Valentine's Day is very small for those that are married and very big for those that are single. It was a man that demonstrated love beyond all else. As I began to read that story, I started thinking to myself, my gosh, what's going on in our culture? I started to look up statistics. This year in the United States, even in the middle of a recession, we're probably going to spend $15 billion on Valentine's Day. One billion cards will go out. That's second only to Christmas. 20% of women will send roses to themselves. (laughs) 3% of you in here, and I won't make you raise your hands, will send Valentines to your pets. (laughs) One guy's back there going, oh. But the thing that hit me is that our culture is going back to what it was before the church came in and redefined it. In fact, rampant within our culture is this concept of meism. We've established it now as this form of love that literally we're not trying to express generally the kind of love that is talked about with this guy Valentine, but we've switched it into a kind of love that generally tends to flow around what I can get from me. And so I've been spending all week just meditating through that. When Francis asked me to speak today, the one thing I want to do is just share with you what I learned. 
I learned something incredible at looking at the scriptures and that there was this guy named Paul who was very similar to this Valentine. And I started asking this question in my head. What is it that stirs in the heart of a person to love in a risky, non-careful, unabashed, willing to even risk your life and limb? What causes that to happen inside of a person? And I've been teaching 1 Corinthians for about the last five or six years over at EBC. And as I'm studying and preparing for it, all of a sudden it hit me. The book of 1 Corinthians is the perfect book to deal with this particular issue. Because what Paul was dealing with in Corinth was this group of people that were so insatiated with meism that he was going to help them understand who Jesus was. And understanding who Jesus was, he was going to help them to understand who he was as Lord and Savior was absolutely contradictory to meism. And if you remember right in 1 Corinthians 1 when he came and said, I preach Christ and him crucified, he wasn't just talking about good theological discussion. He was talking about a life. See, we can tend to romanticize Valentine, but let me tell you something. I don't know if you've ever seen this before where somebody almost gets beat to death, but it is not pretty. It's a grotesque thing. And to end it with somebody getting their head chopped off as a means of literally feeling bad for that person, we need to understand that he was simply modeling what was a path set before him by our Savior, Jesus Christ. What happened to Jesus? We wear crosses around, but do you understand at that time you would be mocked for wearing a cross around? Because it would be almost like in our day wearing an electric chair around. We would think you were sadistic and weird. But Jesus, when he laid out for people what it was going to be like to follow him, he wanted people to understand the type of love that he was going to call them to. A love that was so different than the world, a love that, that isn't satiated with self and meism, but this love that really has this idea that I can go ahead and love to the extreme in absolutely crazy ways because I know I am loved by my Father because of the work of Jesus. I can put everything on the line completely. And in 1 Corinthians, when Paul says, I preached Christ and him crucified, what he was talking about was, is, oh, you saw me, you saw my life. I lived it in front of you. You saw how not only did I talk a gospel, but I didn't take money from you. I literally came and I was weak and I was torn apart after coming from a place right before that. In fact, I barely made it to Corinth. You saw how weak I was, but it doesn't matter because a demonstration of love does not require strength. It requires the power of the gospel in the life of the person. And the one thing that I think Paul hits at the most is two things. Number one, if we are going to ever have that kind of love, if we're going to love like Valentine did, like Paul did, like Jesus did, we must die. That's the point of the New Testament. Number one thing is you must die. Uh, in John 1, we see this played out where literally all of, of the apostle, uh, 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 John's apostles were leaving him and going over to Jesus and they start complaining about Jesus getting all these different people and what happened at that moment was is, is John said, no, 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 he must become greater, I must become what? Less. And the whole book of 1 Corinthians is a story about us becoming less and the gospel that he preached. Now go with me to 1 Corinthians 6. Let me show you as I get to the text we're gonna be at today. 1 Corinthians 6. And I'm sorry I'm going to sit down. I woke up last night really, really sick, and so I'm like, bleh, today. So a little cheers here for me. Look at chapter 6, verse 9. And I love this. 
Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, meism, nor idolaters, meism, nor adulterers, meism, nor men who practice homosexuality, meism, nor thieves, meism, nor the greedy, meism, nor drunkards, meism, nor revilers, meism, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I love this little chunk here. Don't you love these next words? And such were some of who? You. Do you remember when you first came to know Jesus? The other day I was thinking about when I first came to know Jesus, I was nutty. I just was so excited that I knew Jesus. I wanted everyone else to know. I didn't know a thing about this book. I was the guy that had to go to the front in the very beginning and go, which, which order of the books and what pages and on, but I didn't care. I just kept reading and reading and reading, was satiated by it because I thought, no way, I know this Jesus. Such were some of you. For the first time in my life, me became not important and God had taught me how to absorb myself and who Jesus was and the joy that that brought and the thrill that that brought in my life. And then all of a sudden we stay in the church for a while. Have you ever noticed this? The church tends to tame people, doesn't it? When we were all crazy and would do anything, suddenly after being in the church for a little while, we start to get tame. And Paul's reminder to them is like, no, 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 no. And such were some of you. But look what he says to him. I love this. But you were washed the idea being you are dirty and made clean. You are sanctified. Not only were you dirty and made clean, but you are set apart for a use by God. You were justified. In other words, you were vindicated in all the work that Jesus, and he did in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. You are different. It hit me this week praying for my wife. I am married to a daughter of God. Do you realize what a privilege that is? That's daddy's little girl. On one level, that's scary as heck. <laughs> but on another level, this woman is someone that her name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. She's going to spend an eternity with Jesus because she'd been washed, she'd been sanctified, she had literally been made different, Paul says. But the thing that I can't forget in regards to my wife, and go to verse 19, this is so important. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I don't own her. She's owned by one and one only, merely in my life. She's a stewardship in my life. The Bible talks about now I can love her like Christ loves the church, enjoying God and making her this beautiful one that, that God, when he returns, will find hopefully the faithfulness of me in her life. One day Jesus is going to come back and go, Todd, it's all over. She's now mine, you're mine. It's time to go home. And this week, as I just thought and stopped and think through it, talk about lack of meism. To realize I'm not my own. I belong to God. I was bought with a price. And I think at the core of where we're going to go when we get into first chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 is this. When we talk about meism, at the heart of meism is this idea that I am the center of the universe, I am the master of my universe, I decide what I'm gonna do and not gonna do. And God says, not when you're gonna follow me. See, not only do you talk about it in 1 Corinthians 6, but Jesus in Luke 14, Matthew 25, he brings this out a little bit. He wants to make sure everybody understands to follow me, Jesus will not play in the co-pilot seat. He doesn't play that. 
He said, in fact, in the book of Luke, he said, look, if you're gonna follow me, you have to hate your mother, your brother, your father, your sister, even your own life. Take up your cross and follow me. In other words, you have to be willing to go to this point in which literally you will even be crucified to follow me. In Matthew, he said it this way, unless you love me more than these, the mother, the father, the brother, the sister, unless you love me more than this life, literally, you can't be my disciple. And in some ways, that seems so hard until we start to realize that the only one that's due of our love on this planet is Jesus Christ because he is king of kings and he is lord of lords. And the greatest thing that we can ever do is absorb ourselves into his kingdom that he's building on this planet. And I started to get excited as God was teaching me these things. And then I got to 1 Corinthians 13. A chapter that's been abused by all kinds of people. Generally, you'll read it at weddings. <laughs> we love each other. Most times it's never written in context. Because could you imagine after, now think about this for a second. Could you imagine after the pastor reads 1 Corinthians 13 and all of a sudden looks at the husband and goes, listen to me, do you understand that if you don't hate her and love Jesus more, you can't be a disciple of Jesus? Do you hate her more than you love Jesus? That would like totally kill the aura. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> but that's what this verse is gonna talk about. He's gonna lay out three specific things that I think are so key in this that God is so used to challenge me, which is the first one in verses one through three. He's gonna talk about this idea that with part from love, unless love is ingrained within everything we do, it is literally nothing. John 15 connects it with this idea that unless you abide in Jesus, apart from him, you can't do anything. The idea being that not only do I have to die to something, Todd has to die, but now I must live to something. I must now quit being satiated with meism with Todd and begin to find my life and my fulfillment in what I believe the Holy Spirit takes us to, which is to fall passionately in love with Jesus Christ. Now keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 13. I'll get there in just a second. But look at, uh, look at chapter 2. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Chapter 2, verse 6. This idea of this radical love, this love that starts, that starts to, to literally, that Todd becomes less and Jesus becomes more, this idea now of Todd dying and Jesus starting to live in me, Paul wants to make sure all of us understood where this comes from. Look at verse six. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one for who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him but look at this statement. We have the mind of Christ. 
See, when the Holy Spirit comes in, this idea of last week we talked about in Romans 12, I urge you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service worship. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, God knows once he gets my mind, he has all of me. And if Christ is in control of this mind, watch out because then this person will start to walk like Christ, talk like Christ, and live like Christ. And eventually will start to love in such a way that it is sacrificial, that it is the only way that Jesus could ever provide. But I've got to be in step with the Spirit. And go back to 13. Now let me show you what I'm talking about in chapter 13. Now, Paul starts off and he says this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Here's the first thing. If I'm going to love radically like Valentine and like Paul and most importantly like Jesus who literally started this whole thing and paved the way for it, I have to understand that there is no way to pull this off apart from a supernatural necessity that I receive from God. You can't do it. You can't work hard enough. I remember so many people I've talked to, including myself, where I was like, oh, I want to love more. I want to love more. And here's the biggest mistake we make. You don't have to find love. You have to find God through the person and work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And when you find God, love finds you. It's so important to understand that. Everyone's out looking for love and all the wrong places, right? <laughs> and the thing they don't understand is love is sitting there staring me in the face. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, it says that literally this message is all around us. It's a message saying you can love like Jesus because God has created a means through this work of Jesus now to draw near to him and be transformed into the image of his son. And as I was praying for myself, gosh, and maybe just talk to the guys for a little bit here for a second. Don't we miss this one too often? The greatest gift that you can give your wife and your kids and the people around you or whoever that you come into contact with is an absolute passionate love of Jesus Christ. Keep your finger at 1 Corinthians 13. Go back with me to Revelation 2. Or, yeah, Revelation 2. Jesus is talking to a church in Ephesus. He says to him this, verse two, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Look at verse six, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He's talking to him and he's saying, you guys on so many levels are a great church, phenomenal church. Well, you work hard, you suffer, you do all these incredible things, but then chapter, verse four just absolutely is like a laser shooting through everything, absolutely confronting what's going on with this group of people. He says, but this I have against you. Can you imagine standing in front of Jesus and him looking at you and going, I have something against you. You got a great job, nice house, 
great cars. Your kids are playing 50 million sports just like the rest of America. You're going down that path. Way to go. Oh, but I have one thing. All that stuff is meaningless because you don't love me. See, the greatest gift that any of us in this room can offer to the one that we love, whoever that might be, is a passionate life that is centered around Jesus Christ. The greatest thing I can give my kids is to see a dad that is so enthralled with Jesus that he's not trying to get his kids to live up to an American dream, but he's trying to help through his life for them to see there's a dream so much grander than the American dream. It is a dream that is offered to all those who believe in Jesus, that it's, it's literally held in heaven for those who believe. To live this radical, loving wife or life where they understand that daddy is not consumed by things in this world. He understands the necessity of them. But these things don't own him. God owns him. And therefore, God owns those things. And God can use them however he wants to. And I started to just beg God for that love of Jesus. But then he goes on. He says, not only is it this, this life centered around Jesus, but here's the second thing in verses 4 through 7. There's a necessity of supernatural love, but if we begin to walk with Jesus, pretty soon there's going to be a character that comes out of our life of supernatural love. Now look how he puts it this. Look how he, look how he defines the character that starts to come out of the life of a person if they begin to make Jesus the absolute center of their life. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Literally, the idea is, is this love that gets planting, planted into this person doesn't only give, but it just keeps on giving. As I start to get to know Jesus, as I begin to walk and step with the Spirit, the first fruit of the Spirit is love. And I begin to ooze it out of my life. See, the thing that all these are here for, and let me just kind of talk to guys for a little bit because I haven't processed it through yet for women on some levels. But so often I feel like we say we love people, but our actions speak a different thing. Over and over we will say, I love you, I love you, I love you. But then if you started looking at your day and your week and your month, you'll start to realize my talk and my walk are not matching one another. See, it's not only claiming this oneness with Jesus that I love him and I'm passionate about him, but the thing I love about 1 John, and I hope you've seen that, homeboy does not play. Does he? So anyway, you say you love God, but you hate your brother. Well, you're not a believer. I mean, it's just like, whoa. I mean, he's so to the point and so grills in on it. Now, here's some of the things that I started to do. I found this off of uh, John Piper. Was, he he kind of got me thinking about some of this stuff. Now, this whole idea is if I'm supposed to die to something in light of these, these, these character traits that come out of supernatural love, what does it look like then at these character traits for me to die to myself? Here's what I came up with. Being patient means dying to the desire for an untroubled life. Don't we work on, over time trying to live the untroubled life? We want everything just to be what? Man, when I watch the kids for my wife on Friday... I love her more and more. <laughs> Talk about controlled chaos. And the kids the other day had the audacity while I was working on something to play. <laughs> Being kind 
means dying to the fear that others may not return that kindness. Oh, don't we fear that one. If I'm actually kind to you, if I love you, I may not get it in return, so therefore I'm not going to give it to you in the first place. Having no envy means dying to the desire for unshared affection. I've walked a few people lately through this concept, this nastiness called divorce. Talk about loving someone that doesn't want to love you in return. Not boasting means dying to the desire to call attention to our successes. And oh, men are good at this. Boy, we sweep in and we love to tell about our successes, but in ways that are so uh, kind of under the table. Um, I grew up in Wyoming, Montana, and I always laugh sitting outside with men because it's country, you know, and either talking about cars or hunting, everything gets bigger and bigger than it really was. Not being rude means dying to the desire to express our freedom offensively. That's just the way I am. Then you don't know Jesus. Not insisting on your own way means dying to the dominance of our own preferences. Not being irritable or resentful means dying to the need for no frustrations. Not rejoicing at wrongdoing means dying to the desire to see others get what they deserve. Bearing all things, enduring all things means dying to the desire to run away from the pain of obedience. So what do we live to? Being patient means living to enter the situations that are difficult because we believe in the power of the Spirit and Jesus will be most honored in that way. I believe that when Jesus comes into us, we all now become these supernatural people that can handle any situation. And at any point we can't handle the situation, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, God will provide a means of escape. That means going into him boldly, understanding I have the Spirit, being kind, means living to shower all of God's undeserved kindness towards us on others. Boy, the one thing I think married couples struggle through is this concept of forgiveness. We love being forgiven by God. We love grace from God, but oh, sharing that. We don't like to do it. Having no envy means living to rejoice in what God gives others. Not boasting means living in the freedom to boast about God and what he has done through others. Not being rude means living with others in such a way that your freedom is used to build them up, not your own sinful desires. Not insisting on your own way means living in the confidence that I live now to walk in Christ's way, trusting that the sovereign God who is my Father will always guide me down the right paths. Not being irritable or resentful means living to bring grace into every situation like Jesus did. Not rejoicing at wrongdoing means living in such a way that others see mercy from us when so many want to give them justice. Bearing all things, enduring all things means living unafraid of pain because we know God uses pain to make us more and more into the image of his son. This idea of love, and I started to realize as I'm writing a note to my wife, God, unless your spirit does a work in my life, I'm not gonna do this. Try to live what's in there. It's brutal. And the last thing is this, he goes on, he says, not only is there a necessity and character of supernatural love, but I love this part of it. Look at verse eight. Love never ends. Everything else in this world is gonna pass away. In fact, his very end of chapter, verse 13, he says, faith and hope are only temporary because one day faith will be realized, hope will be realized. But do you understand where we are going and how radical we can live our lives on this earth because in light of where we're going? Do you understand that if you die and you know Jesus, you are going to a better place than here? 
Do you understand that if you start to live your life in such a way that you, you don't start to pour your life into the things that are temporal, but you start to pour your life into the things that are internal, you might eternal, you might actually have kids that don't think you're a hypocrite. Do you get that if you start to live this way, you might actually find a joy that the Holy Spirit provides as you not store up treasures on earth, but you begin to store up treasures in heaven? It hit me. A guy sat down with me the other day to talk with me through a retirement plan. I listened to him. He got done, and I go, dude, I got no money. <laughs> That's why I got kids, because the Bible says they're supposed to take care of me in the end. <laughs> I figure if I get about five more, I'll be good. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> he goes, but have you thought through a 30-year plan? I go, you know, bro, I'm trying to think through a 1,000-year plan. I'm trying to think differently through life. I understand the necessity, and by the way, if you have retirement, it's not the, it's fine. Please don't go home now and cut your wrists and slit your throat. I mean, it's just, it's this idea though that have you ever noticed we're trusting more in the market? Boy, didn't we find out over the last two years that doesn't work, does it? All these people that have poured their money and life into the market only for the market to go ha, ha, ha. But oh, those people that have poured their life into things that are eternal. As I was going through that and thinking through this whole concept, I remembered a book that I'd written, or I'd read a few years ago about a guy named Christopher and Mary Love. Christopher was a pastor, a Puritan pastor in the 1600s, right around the mid-1600s. And suddenly it came to a conscience issue that he could no longer obey the king other pastors decide, oh, it's cool. We'll just kind of tell the king whatever he wants to tell him. But literally, Christopher Love said, I can't do that. I must keep doing what I'm supposed to do. God is my ruler. You are not. Through a long process, basically, he then was sentenced to death. And the best part that was saved from Christopher Love's life is not his sermons. Let me tell you something. His sermons were something else. This is a man that understood a life centered around Jesus. He understood the character that oozes out when we begin to love Jesus. He also understands this idea of everything in heaven. And you wonder where it's at, but at the end of his life, letters between he and his wife just bring this to a surface that's so big. I was in a plane flying into Boise, Idaho, and I started to read these to my wife, and we sat in the back of the plane and realized we are not these people. They walked with Jesus, believed Jesus. They centered their whole life around Jesus, and what came was at the end of his life, when he was facing getting his head cut off, these letters pour out of the two of them. And I'll tell you what, getting a letter like I'm about to read to you from this wife would be huge. She writes this the day before he dies. Before I write a word further, I beg you not to think that it is your wife but a friend that writes to you. I hope you have freely given up your wife and children to God who has is, who is told us through the prophet Jeremiah, leave your fatherless children, I will preserve them alive and let your widow trust in me. Your maker will be my husband and a father to our children. Oh, that the Lord would keep us from having one troubled thought for your family. I desire freely to give you up into our Father's hands and not, not only look upon it as a crown of glory for you to die for Jesus, but as an honor to me that I should have a husband to leave for Christ. I dare not speak to you, nor have I thought within my heart of my unspeakable loss, but wholly keep my eye fixed upon your inexpressible and inconceivable gain. You leave but a sinful mortal wife with 
to be everlastingly married to the Lord of glory. You leave but children, brothers and sisters, to go to be with the Lord Jesus, your eldest brother. You leave friends on earth to go to enjoy, to the enjoyment of saints and angels and the spirits of men made perfect in glory. You will but leave earth for heaven and change prison for a palace. And if natural affections should begin to arise, I hope the spirit of grace that is within you will suppress them, knowing that all things here below are but dung and dross in comparison to those things that are above. I know you will keep your eye fixed on the hope of glory, which makes your feet trample on the loss of this earth. My dear, my dear sweetheart, I know God has not only prepared you for it, but I am persuaded that he will sweeten the way for you to come to the enjoyment of it. When you are putting on your clothes that morning in your prison cell, think, I am putting on my wedding garments to go be everlastingly married to my Redeemer. When the messenger of death comes to you, let him not seem as dreadful to you, but look on him as a messenger that brings to you tidings of eternal life. When you go up the scaffold, think, as you said to me, that it is but the fiery chariot to carry me off to my father's house. And when you lay down your precious head to receive your father's stroke, when that axe comes down, Remember what you said to me, though your head be severed from your body, yet in a moment your soul should be united to your head, the Lord Jesus in heaven. And though it may seem something bitter that by the hands of men we are parted a little sooner than otherwise we might have been, yet let us consider that it is the decree and will of our Father, and it will not be long until we shall see and enjoy one another again in heaven. Let us comfort one another with these sayings. Be comforted, my dear, dear heart. It is but a little stroke and you will be there where weary shall be at rest and where the wicked will cease from troubling. Remember that you might eat your dinner with bitter herbs here on earth, yet you will have a sweet supper with Christ that very day. My dear, by what I write unto you, I do not hereby undertake to teach you. For these comforts I have received from you by the Lord. I will write no more nor trouble you any further, but commit you into the arms of God with whom ere long you and I shall be. Farewell, my dear, my dearest. I shall never see your face more till we behold the face of our Lord Jesus at that great day. Mary, love. Oh, goodness. To receive a note like this from your wife, and then the day that he is to be executed, he sends this back to his wife. My most gracious beloved, I'm now going from a prison to a palace. I have finished my work. I am now to receive my wages. I am now going to heaven where are two of my children and leaving you on earth where are three of my babes. Those two above need not my care, but the three below need yours. And it comforts me to think two of my children are in the bosom of Abraham in heaven and three of them will be in the arms and care of so tenderly a godly mother. I know you are a woman of sorrowful spirit, yet be comforted. Though your sorrow be great for your husband's going out of this world, yet your pain shall be less in bringing your children into the world. You should be a joyful mother, though you are a sad widow. God has many mercies in store for you. The prayers of a dying husband for you will not be lost, and to my shame I speak it. I never have prayed for you so much for you at liberty as I have as I've been in prison. Swallow up your will in the will of God. Center your life around Jesus. It is a bitter cup that we are to drink, but in the cup our Father has put it, put it into our hands. So when Paul was to suffer at Jerusalem, the Christians said, the will of the Lord be done. And oh, sweet Mary, say the same when I go to Tower Hill. The will of the Lord be done. Rejoice in my joy. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Oh, let it be yours also. Dear wife, farewell. I will call you wife no more. I shall see your face no more. Yet I am much troubled, for now I am going to meet the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus, to whom I shall be eternally married. Farewell, dear love, and again I say farewell. 
The Lord Jesus be with your spirit, the maker of heaven and earth, be a husband to you, and the father of our Lord Jesus Christ be a father to our children. So praise your dying, your most affectionate friend till death, Christopher Love. What that caused me to do is to realize I don't want to wait till a deathbed to write that kind of a note to my wife. I never do this. I've never done something like this before. I've written notes to my wife, but I've never shared them. And I'm not writing it to you because it's such a great note. I'm, write, I'm reading it to you because this is what God has taught me off of what I've learned. And I'll just share you with the things that I've learned. I've been wrestling. Oh, dear Lisa, my wife. I've been wrestling for the last few days on how I might say to you, Happy Valentine's Day. As I've read about this celebration of love and the man for who it is named, to simply give you a card, some roses, and a nice meal seems almost trite and small. While it might be nice, it in no way models the purpose for which the church chose St. Valentine to represent love. His love wasn't nice, but was a spirit-empowered, dangerous, risky, costly, sacrificial, unsafe love that when it came to the surface resembled the love of Jesus, the one to whom we have committed ourselves with our whole heart and mind. God didn't send a box of chocolates to express his love. He embodied himself and sent his one and only son, paving the way for those that followed to do the same. Because I believe that I have joined Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, and that this same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead now resides in me, I want to love you beyond what the world does. I want to love you like Christ loves his church, not just on February 14th. Those without the Spirit can do that. I desire to love you in such a way that the only explanation is that Christ is alive in me through the power of the Spirit. Jesus didn't raise me out of the deadness of my sin to live for myself, but for him. You are truly a gift, a gift to which I can never repay God, with which he has blessed me, not to be served, but to be like my Savior towards you and to serve you. Yesterday I spent time asking God to forgive me for too often not loving you like Jesus. As I prayed, the Spirit reminded me of the privilege we share in joining him in his death, knowing that our sin is nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. I know I can't pay him back for my offenses and to try to might appease my conscience and pride, so instead I marveled that the only thing I can do is humbly receive the amazing gift of him, bearing the wrath that was owed me for wrongdoing an infinite and holy God. I also asked him to open my eyes to the power I have received when he raised me with Jesus, to live like Jesus did through the power of the Holy Spirit, loving absolutely supernaturally. I also, however, need to ask for your forgiveness. Too often I've been okay with loving you like the world loves, and that kind of love isn't dangerous, costly, or sacrificial in the least. That was settling for mediocrity, which is so opposite of our Savior. If God's heart is to lead our children, the believers in our neighborhood, and us into the unsafe, unabandoned love for fellow believers in our neighborhoods, it must begin by God doing a work in me and empowering me to exhibit it to you, not just on February 14th, but every day until Jesus returns. Lisa, my heart is to walk the path that Jesus walked while he was here on earth. I'm so excited he chose to put you nearest to me on this path. I read scripture and understand that it is narrow and hard, that it involves forsaking so many good things and taking up a cross but I know at the end of this spirit-empowered path is life, not just life to come when Jesus returns to take us home, but life right here and now. I'm gonna walk this path with our kids in such a way that we not only talk about the power of the gospel, but we model the gospel. I never, ever wanna hear from our kids that we settled for mediocrity in regards to the amazing mission with which God has included us into. This morning, I don't come to you with jewelry or flowers or candy, but what I do possess, I give you. My valentine to you 
is you joining me and me joining you on an adventure that will cost us greatly in this life, but will be rewarded beyond anything we can imagine when our Lord and Savior Jesus returns. It will be a voyage that will conclude with the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my, to the joy of your master. And even though in the new heavens and new earth we won't be married, we will know each other still as the one with which we most intimately journeyed on the path set by Jesus, your Valentine Todd. Jesus, we love you so much. God, I pray that you take the things you taught me and encourage the flock here. God, I pray for our husbands in here and, and fathers. I beg you that they wouldn't offer cheap Valentines, God but instead they would offer their life. The God, that those gifts that they might give today wouldn't just be gifts, but instead they would be the embodiment of a heart changed by Jesus Christ. God, I pray that people in this room don't settle for mediocrity. I pray that they would learn to live the forgiveness of Jesus, understanding that we are imperfect, but yet in our imperfection you have provided and made us not sinners but saints and you've transformed us to walk in a new way and talk in a new way and that God, what comes out of that are just men that lead their families not from an upright position but men on their knees in prayer and washing feet. God, I beg you. I pray for our wives. God, I do believe that the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. God, bless them in a way that, that I don't even understand. God, I pray that around Cornerstone become a lot of merry loves that love you more than they love anything else. And God, out of it, the thing I beg you is that you then begin to transform our kids to not just get involved in a program that is called church, but a life, a life that is eternal in your precious name we pray. Amen.